you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to the book of Revelation, the 8th chapter. This morning we'll be covering all of chapter 8 of the book of Revelation. If you're new with us this morning, go back and listen to everything else. It's going to feel weird kind of jumping into the middle. When Jesus was teaching his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, he taught them how to pray. And he said to them in Matthew 6, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I don't know about you, but sometimes it seems like that prayer goes unanswered. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Life in this world doesn't seem like a kingdom life. We look around us in our culture and even at ourselves and we wonder, is God's will being done on earth and is it being done as it's being done in heaven? Evil seems to run rampant in our world with little to no consequence. Immorality seems to... to, spread and and escalate unchallenged. The ungodly prosper many times at the hands of God's people. Sin grows unchecked in the world around us and even within our own hearts. When will God's kingdom come? When will it be that his will will be done on earth just like it is in heaven? Will it ever happen? What we read in the 8th chapter of the book of Revelation begins to shed some light on that question as we see the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, open the 7th seal and prepare to bring God's judgment for sin. Let's read Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. This is God's word. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. 
Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Let's pray. Our Father, we worship you in song and now in spirit as we come to your word. Father, I ask in Jesus' name that that you would do in us what you intend with the book of Revelation, that you would equip us, your people, in this day to persevere through tribulation of our current day and that which might come. We pray, Father, that you would prepare your people for whatever might lie ahead, that we might be faithful, that we might persevere, that we might be the overcomers that Jesus speaks of in the letters to the seven churches. We want to be overcomers for you. We want to be faithful to the very end, Lord. And so may your word build in us a faith that will last and a hope that will not turn away. That we might keep our hand to the plow and continue to be faithful in the mission that you've set before us. So do your work in us this morning, Lord. Remove me from any focus, any attention. May your word take center stage, and may we submit and surrender ourselves to you as you speak to us from it. We ask this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's going on here? Let's remember where we are. John's on an island. Apostle John is exiled on the island of Patmos. And while he's there, Jesus shows up to him in a vision. And he gives him a revelation. That word revelation is the very first word in the Greek manuscript of this book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
It's the Greek word apocalypsis. When we use the word apocalypse today, we are typically referring to the end of the world. If you were to look up that word in your dictionary, that's what it would say. It would have some reference to the end of the world. But the etymology of that word, apocalypsis, revelation, the etymology of it goes back to this Greek word here, apocalypsis. It's a compound word. Apo is a preposition which means out of or off of or from. And calypto is a verb that means to cover. And so literally this Greek word apocalypsis means to uncover or to reveal. In other words, this is a revealing or a revelation. And so Jesus is revealing something to John. He's giving him a revelation of something. And he's asking John to write this down and give it to the seven churches and subsequently to us. But the big question that we wrestle with in Revelation, or at least one of them, is whether he is revealing something about the future, some, some end time that is, that is way out in the future, which is what our word apocalypse means in our English vernacular, or whether he is revealing to that first century audience something that had already happened or was imminent and was going to happen soon or sometime during the church age. We've talked about the different schools of thought on that question. The historicist tells us that this is all stuff that's already happened. The preterist, as we've noted, tells us that this is stuff that was happening in the first century and it was, was going to continue to happen throughout the church age between the advents of Christ, Jesus' first coming and his return. The futurist, on the other hand, will tell us that this is all stuff that is going to happen in the future, like far off, at the end of the world. But the reality is, most Bible scholars will be a mixture of those views, some of this certainly has seen at least, at least partial fulfillment in history, while some of it certainly reflects things that have been happening throughout the church age between the first and second advent of Christ, specifically reflecting the persecution of the church and the, the tribulation that the church and the world endures and the martyrdom of believers throughout the history of the Christian church. But no matter how much past or, or present fulfillment we see in Revelation, we must also admit that there is at least some future fulfillment here. And so to one degree or another, we all take an eclectic approach to understanding apocalyptic vision. That is, revelatory vision that is found in this book. So even, for example, if you're a full-blown preterist and you see this as primarily occurring now or in the first century you're going to see at least some future fulfillment specifically in the return of christ and the establishment of the final state in the new heaven and the new earth and if you are a full-blown futurist you're you're going to see some past and some present fulfillment both in the first century and in our day today the question is, where does the present fulfillment end and the future fulfillment 
begin. And that's where we're going to see the most disagreement between Bible scholars on this challenging book. And it's what we wrestle with in this morning's text as well. But as we wrestle with this, let us be sure to keep in mind that the timing of these events and when they occur on the timeline of history is not nearly as important as the meaning of the vision itself that's given to John. The timing of when it happens is secondary, if not tertiary, in importance. While the why of what happens in the vision is of primary concern. And so... I am going to approach this text and this passage this morning primarily from a futurist interpretation, and I'll do my best to explain why I believe it that way. But I want to focus our time and our energies on what is primary, understanding why Jesus gave John this vision. What was the purpose for it? Why did he include it in the Bible? And how can it serve to do what we've agreed is the purpose of this book, which is to equip the church to persevere through tribulation. So I've outlined the content of chapter 8 with five statements. So the first is found in verse 1. In verse 1, the Lamb opens the seventh seal. And so now we're returning to the narrative of the vision that we left off of in chapter 6. In chapter 6, we saw the first six seals. The seals were sealing up a scroll that Jesus was given from God who sat on the throne. And we saw the six seals in chapter 6. Chapter 7 was an interlude. Now we're back to those same seals. Now we're looking at the seventh seal. Verse 1 says, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And, And I believe that we are to be caught off guard by this silence. Because certainly, if you were to put yourself in the position of John receiving this vision from Jesus, certainly he would, be, would have been caught off guard by this silence. Remember what's been going on in the story. In chapter 7, we saw two visions of the church. First, of the church lined up as if for battle, preparing for the tribulation, preparing to enter into hard times, ready for battle. That was the first half of chapter 7. And then the second half of chapter 7, which we covered last week, we saw this great uncountable multitude from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, worshiping God and worshiping Jesus. And then we saw the 24 elders and the four living creatures, and, and we're told, John tells us, all the angels of heaven, they all fall on their faces And they're worshiping God, saying blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. There was this magnificent chorus of praises being offered by both the great multitude that no one could count as well as all of the angels of heaven praising God. It must have been incredibly, tremendously loud Every corner of heaven was filled with the praises of his people and the praises of his angels. And then the Lamb opens the seventh seal and there is silence. It must have been startling. It must have been so abrupt. All this worship stopped. All the shouts of praise cease. 
You've got the great uncountable multitude before the throne, all of the hosts of heaven gathered around the throne, and even with all of that, not a sound, not a whisper. And not just for a few seconds. If we had silence in here for 10 seconds, it would be startling. Imagine 30 minutes, a great uncountable multitude, all the hosts of heaven shouting, praising God, and it's silence. What was this silence about? There had to have been a purpose to it. What was going on? We go through the Old Testament, we, we see that silence is a, is a foreboding prelude to judgment. Punishment's coming. The prophet Habakkuk was pronouncing judgment in Habakkuk in his, in his book in chapter 2. Pronouncing judgment on the Chaldeans for their idolatry and their immorality. And he says in Habakkuk 2 verse 20, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. He chronicles the idolatry of the Chaldeans and the immorality that they're going. But the Lord is in his temple. Be silent before him. Here he comes. He's getting ready to, to, to do justice to the Chaldeans. Zephaniah is prophesying about the coming great day of the Lord in his prophet, in his book. Whenever the Old Testament uses that phrase, the coming great day of the Lord, it's always a reference to the final judgment. The coming great day of the Lord. And he says in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 7, Be silent before the Lord our God, for the day of the Lord is near. Si- silence marks out that God's about ready to pour out His wrath. He's been holding back. He's been graciously holding back. But that's about to change. Silent meant that judgment was coming. It was the calm before the storm. And that's what we see of the silence here in verse 1 of chapter 8. This silence for half an hour meant that judgment, divine wrath, was about to be poured out. And that's exactly what we see in the trumpets to follow. So this silence is a marker also of the seven seals being ended and the narrative of the vision now moving to the seven trumpets which are now introduced to us in verse 2. In verse 2, John sees not just seven angels, but we're told the seven angels, the the definite article there, which I, I find interesting. John sees the seven angels who stand before the throne as if they're infamous for this. They're they're known for this. This is their job. They stand before the throne. And they're given seven trumpets. We're not told who gives it to them, but we're to presume it's God. God gives these angels these trumpets, which indicates to us that these trumpet judgments come from God who sits on the throne. And they are aimed primarily at punishing sin. Remember the seven seals that we looked at 
or at least the first six of them in chapter 6. They were not so much judgments as we read through them as they were tribulation, suffering, and trial that those on earth were subjected to. And some of them, if you'll recall, almost seem to have kind of a, maybe a demonic component to them, some kind of evil component to them. Remember the red rider, uh, the, the rider on the red horse in the second seal who was permitted to take peace from the earth so that those on the earth might slay one another. That almost sounds demonic, doesn't it? Then the fourth seal, uh, the, the pale horse that came out, and we're told that its rider was called Death, and Hades followed after him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill Again, almost sounds there like evil is permitted an opportunity to bring suffering and tribulation to those on the earth. But whether those seals' judgments had any kind of demonic or satanic component to them or not, it was clear that both believer and unbeliever were affected by them. Whereas these trumpet judgments, as we see, they seem to be aimed more about God sending judgment to judge sin and rebellion on the earth. And I think we'll see this as we cover the trumpets both this week and next. But before any of these seven angels blow their trumpets, before we hear any of that, John sees another angel in verse 3. Now, verses 3 and through 5 almost seem like a diversion from the flow of thought in this vision, don't they? So, so we, we're introduced to, in verse 2 to the seven angels who have the seven trumpets, but they don't blow the trumpets until verse 6. It's almost as though verse 2 and verse 6 are, are parentheses, and verses 3 through 5 are a pause in the action, a diversion from the flow of thought about these seven trumpets. And this usually means, when we see this in Scripture, this usually means that the writer wants us to notice something about this. So what do we notice about verses 3 through 5? In these verses, John has this vision of another angel. You have the seven angels that he saw with the seven trumpets, but then he sees this other angel. And this other angel comes to the altar in heaven. Now, parenthetically, this is another example of why we need to be careful And understand that Revelation is apocalyptic literature. We can't always approach it literally. We have to use some sense of figurative interpretation here. Because there is no altar in heaven. There is no need for an altar in heaven. There will be no altar in the new heaven and the new earth. The last altar that was required was the altar at Calvary when Jesus offered up his body, his life, as a perfect sacrifice for the sins of man. There's no altar in heaven, but in this vision, in this apocalyptic vision, this is how it is, it is described for John that the angel comes to the altar. And as he approaches the altar, he's holding a golden censer. A censer is just a, a container in which incense is burned. And we're told that he's given much incense to put in the censer. Again, Presumably, he's given the incense by God himself. 
God gives them the incense and, and is combined and offered up to God with the prayers of the people. And so the incense with the prayers of the saints are offered up to God as a fragrant offering before him. Now, who are these saints who are offering these prayers that are then burned in the golden censer as a fragrant offering before God? Who are these saints? Well, they're you and I. They are every believer in Christ who has ever asked God to bring justice on earth. Who's ever asked God to vindicate himself by bringing judgment and vengeance on those who have mocked him and rejected him and killed his servants and rejected his followers and his gospel? Have you ever prayed and asked God to right a wrong? To fix an injustice? Not so that we can get some kind of vain vengeance, but so that God would be seen as great and glorious. So that his name would be revered and not mocked. Oh Lord, please stop evil from advancing in the world. God, would you stop that German chancellor from killing the Jews? How many times would that prayer have been offered during the 1940s. Lord, I beg you, pour out your wrath on those who abuse and sexually exploit children. Have you ever prayed prayers like that? We all have, right? But doesn't it sometimes feel like those prayers just bounce off the ceiling? As if God doesn't hear them? Or maybe he ignores them? Or maybe he's too busy to do anything about them or, or, or perhaps worse, just doesn't care. Well, friend, this, this verse, this vision tells us that every one of those prayers are stored up in heaven. They weren't ignored. They, they weren't forgotten. He heard every single one of them and at the proper moment, at the proper time, every single one of them will be added to this angel's censer and offered up to God as a fragrant offering. And the smoke of this offering will, will rise up to the nostrils of the God on the throne. And then what will happen? Well, in the vision... The angel then puts the fire from the altar in the censer. The fire being symbolic of God's judgment and God's wrath. And then he throws that fire on the earth. And there is thunder and rumblings and lightning and earthquake. What does this mean? Well, I don't think that we're to draw from this that at some future point an angel is going to throw fire down to heaven, from heaven onto earth. Honestly, I think that is taking an apocalyptic vision and forcing a literal interpretation. Instead, I think we're to interpret this, this figuratively and see that our prayers 
yesterday, today, and tomorrow for justice, for God to right all the wrongs that we see around us in the world, and to punish all sin and unrighteousness and, and to judge an unbelieving world, that those prayers will all, day, all one day be answered. And that the answer will be God pouring out His justice from heaven. And that's what's represented with the fire from heaven that, that is cast down to earth. This is God's judgment being poured out on sin. So don't think for a moment that your prayers along these lines are, are wasted prayers. They're not. Don't think that they don't matter. They do. And one day they will be offered up to God as a fragrant offering to Him. And He will answer every one of them. Sin and immorality and unrighteousness and rebellion and rejection of God and mockery of His Son will not go on forever. It may seem like it's the rule of the day, but it won't go on forever. Judgment is coming. And so now the vision returns to the seven angels who have the seven trumpets, and we begin to see some of that judgment that is coming. We see this in verses 6 through 12 as we are introduced to the first four of the seven judge trumpets. So this picks back up the narrative of verse 2. The first trumpet is found in verse 7. And we're told about hail and fire mixed with blood that's poured out on the earth. And it burns up a third of the trees and a third of the earth. And all of the grass. Here's another parenthetical thought and warning, caution for how we need to be careful about a literal interpretation of all of what we find in the book of Revelation. Because we see one of those cautions here. In verse 7, we're told that hail and fire mixed with blood are thrown on the earth and a, a third of the earth is burned up, a third of the trees, and all of the green grass, all of it. So presumably there's no green grass after this judgment. But what we'll see in the very next chapter, chapter 9, verse 4, there are locusts that sent out on the earth in the fifth trumpet, and they are specifically told not to harm the grass on the earth. Why would they need to be told that if all the grass had been burned up in the first trumpet? I think the answer is because we're not meant to interpret all of this literally. I think we're meant to interpret this figuratively, and so I think we're to understand this first trumpet as focusing its catastrophic effects on the earth, specifically the land and what we find on the land. The second trumpet is in verses 8 and 9. There we see a burning mountain that's thrown into the ocean, and as a result, a third of the seas turn to blood, a third of the sea creatures die, and a third of the ships are destroyed. Now while a literal interpretation might see in this picture here a description of a volcano erupting and causing natural disaster throughout the earth, it's plausible, but a figurative interpretation, which I prefer, 
sees in this burning mountain that's thrown into the sea a symbolic reference of judgment coming from God whose catastrophic effect is focused not on the land but now on the sea. And then we go to the third trumpet in verses 10 through 11. A star that's got a name called Wormwood falls to the earth and poisons the fresh water and as a result of that, people die. So see the pattern here. With the first trumpet, the judgment focuses on the land. With the second trumpet, the, the, the judgment focuses on the sea. With the third trumpet now, the judgment focuses on the fresh water, which people drink. And as a result of the fresh water being contaminated now, people die as a result of drinking it. And then the fourth trumpet in verse 12, where a third of the sun, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars turn to darkness, and a third of the day and a third of the night become dark. And so this fourth trumpet affects the skies, affects specifically our sources of light in the sky, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And so the picture that we get of these first four trumpets is that of global catastrophe happening on the earth. The judgment prayed for by the saints is now coming, and it's awful, and it's going to get worse. It's going to get much worse. As the eagle says in the closing verse of chapter 18, The eagle flies overhead and he cries out with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. That phrase, those who dwell on the earth in the book of Revelation, always refers to the the rebels against God, sinners on, on the earth, earth dwellers. Woe to them at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So verse 13 is an interlude before the fifth trumpet announcing the greater woes of the next three trumpets so the first four trumpets that we cover here in chapter eight are aimed primarily at creation and mankind is only affected indirectly as a result of the judgment that's poured out on creation but in the closing three trumpet judgments the judgment is poured out directly on mankind going to get much worse now in trying to locate the timing of these judgments we would do well to note the similarity in the structure between the seven seals in chapter six and the seven trumpets that we see in chapters eight and nine there were seven seals and there were seven trumpets but the similarity doesn't end there we noticed that with the seals, the first four were grouped together. We referred to them as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Remember that? After those first four seals, they were followed by two more seals. They were different in nature. They were different in form. And then there was a break. There was a pause, an interlude. And then we had the seventh seal, which we see here in the first verse of chapter 8. We see the exact same structure with the trumpets. The first four are grouped together here in chapter 8. There's a similarity, a commonality, a theme between the first four trumpets, just as there were with the first four seals. 
Those first four trumpets are followed by two more trumpets that are different in nature. Instead of being focused on creation, they are focused directly on mankind, on earth dwellers. And then there is a pause, an interlude. The interlude with the seals between the sixth and the seventh seal was chapter seven that we just finished last week. The interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet is all of chapter 10 and half of chapter 11. And then the seventh seal, seventh trumpet will be blown in the second half of chapter 11. So this similar structure between the seals and the trumpets should be a clue to us that there is some kind of connection between them. The seals, remember what they were. They were sealing up a scroll, right? The, the scroll was closed. Couldn't read it. Couldn't be opened. Only the lamb was worthy to open it. So the lamb begins breaking the seals to open the scroll. Oddly, we're never told anything else about the scroll. We would expect that here, but instead, the narrative of the vision just goes straight into the trumpets, which is another example of how apocalyptic revelatory literature is sometimes very challenging to follow. There's no more word about the scroll. But isn't it interesting how the breaking of the seventh seal here gives way to the seven trumpets? Almost as if the seven trumpets are the very contents of the seventh seal. Now that's all very figurative reasoning. It doesn't help much. But if the seven trumpets are within the seven seals somehow. And we keep in mind the time frame that we noticed with the seals. This is going to help us think through when all of this stuff will happen. Not specifically, but generally. Remember what we said about the time frame of the seals. The first four, we said, I said, I concluded, uh, the first four were representative of tribulation that the church and the rest of the world endures and has been enduring ever since the resurrection of Christ, his ascension to heaven, and all throughout the church age leading up to the return of Christ. It's a pretty big swath of time. But we concluded that those were not specifically and exclusively end time tribulation, but included tribulation throughout the church age. And then, on the other end of the spectrum, the sixth seal, we noted, was descriptive of the final judgment, where it's going to get so bad that the unregenerated of that day are going to cry out to the mountains and the rocks to fall on them so that they might escape judgment. So those are the two bookends of the seals, right? Tribulation that has been happening throughout the church age from the first century to the 21st century and beyond until Jesus returns. And at the other bookend, the final judgment itself, right before the new heaven and the new earth. So those are the two bookends of the seal judgments. So now if the trumpet judgments are within the seal judgments, then, if, then instead of seeing the trumpet judgments as subsequent to the seals, as if it followed some kind of very clear chronological order from one to the other, we can see that the trumpet judgments fall somewhere in between those two bookends, right? Now, that still gives us a pretty broad and imprecise location of these judgments. And we should be okay with that because the book of Revelation is okay with that. 
If it wasn't okay with that, it would give us a much clearer picture of when these things happen. And it doesn't, and so presumably that's not the purpose of this book. Now personally, I tend to put the events of these trumpet judgments that we look at in chapter 8 and in chapter 9 next week, whatever they represent in real life, I tend to locate them a bit closer to the final judgment. I see an escalation in intensity here. An escalation that is going to continue as we continue to make our way through these judgments and the ones to come. In the sealed judgments, we were told that a fourth of the earth was destroyed or killed. In the trumpet judgments, that fraction one-fourth becomes a third. If you don't remember math, that means more. And we see that reference to a third all throughout chapter 8. The fractional judgment, by the way, the, the, the fractional destruction that we see here in these judgments perhaps indicates room for repentance. That there may be a redemptive purpose in some of these judgments, leaving room for folks to repent. But later, in the bold judgments, when we get to chapter 16, the fractional destruction is gone, and now it's whole destruction. So we see a, a building in intensity, fourth, third, full. There's an escalation from the seals to the trumpets to the bowls. And so while I see in those three sets of seven judgments somewhat of a recapitulation or a retelling of some of the judgment, I don't see a wholesale retelling. I don't see a wholesale, like the, 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 the trumpets are just the seals from a different perspective. I don't see a wholesale recapitulation because I see a, a clear intensity that grows from one to the other. Also, our reference from chapter 7 a couple of weeks ago, or last week, to that great uncountable multitude standing before the throne and the elder says that these are those coming out of the great tribulation. I think that's what these trumpets are beginning to represent here. The great tribulation. And so I would place these trumpets within the church age, but describing a time that has not yet come. It's on the horizon though. So what do we take away from this passage? How does this passage equip the church in general, and our church in particular, to persevere through tribulation. Three things that I think we should walk away from this passage with. First is a reminder that God is sovereign over all creation. God is the sovereign in charge of all of creation. We see this in His judgments that result in a third of the earth, a third of the trees, and all of the grass being burned up. A third of the sea being turned to blood. A third of the sea creatures dying. A third of the ships being destroyed. A third of the sun, the moon, and the stars turning to darkness. We may not be able to accurately articulate exactly what that's going to look like and what that means in real life. But the intent is to show us that God is the sovereign Yahweh is the sovereign that is in charge of all of creation. 
And secondly, this God who is sovereign over all creation will bring judgment for sin. Judgment is coming. That is a major theme in the book of Revelation. And one that we should not gloss over lightly. To the dude in the first century in one of those churches in Asia Minor who was flirting with idolatry. Or the woman in one of those churches who was dabbling in the occult. This vision would have brought them a very clear and healthy fear of God. And if you're flirting with sin in your life, friend, or playing patty cake with temptation, you should be taken aback by a picture of a God who can do this to creation in the flash of an eye. But part of this encouragement should it should have a sanctifying effect on us in our fight against sin, but it should also have a, a, an encouraging effect on us as we see that all sin will be judged. All rebellion will be thwarted. All unrighteousness, all mockery of God will be stopped. All wickedness will be met with just punishment one day. And part of the encouragement there should, should come from the knowledge that this judgment of wickedness will come, in part at least, as a result of the prayers of the saints. And so thirdly, our third takeaway, God hears the cries of his people for justice and will answer every single one of them. God is not ignoring your prayers along these lines. He, he is not absent. He's not turning a blind eye. Each of those prayers is being stored up in heaven and will one day be offered as a fragrant offering to the Lord. And then perfect judgment and perfect justice will be poured out on all sin. In answer and in response to the prayers of the saints. And so don't stop praying for justice to prevail on the earth. Don't stop. Just because you don't see it happen, don't stop. Don't stop praying for evil to be stopped and for God to deal with the enemies of the cross. Don't stop. Don't stop praying. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. In closing, church, let us not forget who puts all of this into motion the lamb jesus it's the lamb who breaks the seventh seal and inaugurates these trumpet judgments it's the lamb who in chapter 19 will return as the conquering king and finally defeat all enemies of the cross will bring every sinner before the throne in perfect judgment it's the lamb who is the lion of judah who suffered and died on a cross in our place, receiving the judgment that we deserved for our sin and rebellion so that sinners like us could be reconciled back to God. The Lamb conquered sin and death at Calvary. And church, upon His resurrection, He set in motion these very events that we read about in this book. Some of which have, ha have happened some of which are happening, and some of which are going to happen. But the point is, they're happening 
because he won the victory. They're happening because he paid the price. What a joy to know this Jesus as Lord. What a joy to know him as our rescuer, our redeemer, our savior. Do you know him as that? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope to be rescued from the punishment that you and I and all of us deserve because of our rebellion against him? Do you know him as a redeemer? If not, I invite you to meet him. I invite you to get to know him and place your faith in him as your only hope because he is. And if you do know him as Lord, and friend, join me in thanking him for his victory over sin and death. Join me in worshiping him as the lamb who is worthy. And join me in asking him for his help that we might live faithfully and obediently for him in our remaining days until he brings us home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for recording this vision that your son gave to John on the pages of Scripture so that we might be edified by it. And I pray, Lord, that that is what has happened this morning, that your church has been edified, that your people have been equipped. May your work do a your word do a work in our individual and collective hearts to encourage us, to solidify our faith, to trust in Jesus. Keep looking to Jesus. No matter how hard it gets in these days or the days to come, that the church of today and the church of tomorrow will persevere and will be one day welcomed home saved not just from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, but, the, but from the very presence of sin. Welcomed into our eternal home in your presence with no flesh, no sin nature. Simply worship. For that's what you deserve. Until then, keep us faithful. Keep us anchored in this vision of what you're going to do. Keep us on our knees praying for justice, working for justice, and proclaiming the word of justice, which is the gospel, to those who so desperately need it. We love you, Father. Thank you for this word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.